This is uh, from the Shobogenzo <coughs> 300 Koran collection, case 270. Changsha's liturgy, the main case. Monk asked Changsha, what is a Dharani? Changsha pointed to the left of his meditation seat and said, this monk is reciting the Dharani. The monk asked, is there anybody else who can recite it? Changsha pointed to the right of his meditation seat and said, that monk is also reciting it. So the monk asked, then why can't I hear it? Changsha said, haven't you heard that real chanting makes no sound? And in real listening, there is no hearing? The monk asked, doesn't sound enter into the nature of the Dharma realms? Changsha said, living form to observe form isn't a correct view. Living sound to seek listening is impaired hearing. Commentary. In ceremony, there are forms and there are sounds. There is understanding and there is believing. In liturgy, there's only intimacy. Haven't you heard the ancient master's teachings? Seeing forms with the whole body and mind, hearing sound with the whole body and mind. One understands them intimately. Intimate understanding is not like ordinary understanding. Ordinary understanding is seeing with the eye and hearing with the ear. Intimacy is seeing with the ear and hearing with the eye. How do you see with the ear and hear with the eye? Let go of the eye, and the whole body and mind is nothing but the eye. Let go of the ear, and the whole universe is nothing but the ear. The capping verse. Though it fills the eyes, he doesn't see forms. Though it fills the ears, she doesn't hear sound. Manjushri is always covering his eyes. Avalokiteshvara is always covering her ears. So last month, <coughs> Yoga and I went up to Vermont to officiate uh, the wedding of our dear friends, Shindai and Yuji. And the wedding took place on the grounds of a beautiful flower farm. Amazing weather, about 70 degrees, sun shining. The, the ceremony was outdoors, so we were right by the side of a pond with mountains in the background just an amazing experience all around, just by sheer beauty of the location. So as the guests got quiet, Amyogen was about to, just about to lead me into the ceremony, there was a, a sense of everybody got quiet and you look around and there was a sense of unity of everybody knew we are there to, for a reason, for a purpose, to bring two into one, to merge two streams to one. So there was that in the background as well, and that along with the sheer beauty of the location and the quiet created, I felt, a palpable sensation of oneness in which I was actually lost to, or into. It was the water in the pond, the trees in the background, everything just got quiet. Incred incredible experience, and then as I was chanting, right, I had to chant the first the invocation of the three treasures. It felt as if I wasn't chanting it. It felt as if 
I was just a conduit for it, for the sound to come through. And there was a sense of quietude within and without as, as it was taking place. And it was also felt through, we, we chanted together the Enmei Juku Kanon Gyo, as Shindai and Yuji um, asked for. So all the guests had copy of that, and we all chanted together. And as you can imagine, most of them never chanted that before. And even with that, maybe more so with that, there was this sense of unity of everybody, whether they've been doing it before or not. It brought a different energy into everybody's sound, actually. And then after the ceremony, I walked around and I chatted with some people, and people came over, a bunch of people came over and, and expressed how they felt about it. And they said, although they've never been in a, in a Buddhist ceremony, at the Buddhist ceremony, they did not find it awkward, actually, and they found it uh, moving, deeply moving. And although, of course, they did not know what it is there, there was a translation to the Enmeju Kanongyo, but I don't know how many people actually read it, but they seemed to not have minded whether they understood the, the meaning of the words as much as the unity that came through with chanting together. It was incredible. It was deeply moving. And, and it brings up a question for us. What is it that is deeply moving in, in chanting? Is it the, the sound itself of, or the syllables that we're chanting? Is it, the, is it adapting something that uh, is given to us from, or is, has been passed on to us from generation to generation that we keep going with? Or is there something else? Is it possible that although at the beginning what we look at as chanting seems foreign, is it possible that it is resonating with something in us? And then we realize this is actually not foreign. What I'm chanting is an expression of who I am. Is that a possibility? Otherwise, why would we feel moved by it? Because it's quaint, because it's different. We actually may feel aversion because of that, rather than unity, rather than uh, being awake, or being awakened by. So could that be, and I'm going to put it out there, could that be a religious experience? I want to put it out there because it's a question that all of us practitioners face, either by you know, our own thoughts, wondering, is this a religious practice? Or other people come and ask, are you religious? Are you practicing religion? Some say yes, some say no, some say it's a philosophy, even, even among practitioners. Some say it's both religion and a philosophy, and others say it, it's neither. But does it matter when we, when, we chant, when we have deep experiences or a deep experience, whatever it may be? At that moment, does it matter whether we call it, whether we slap on a, a label, we call it something? Does it matter if it matches something we think or something other people think? And th those are important questions to look at. And you know, we may ponder, but do we need to ponder? Right, so, so before we rush to even 
to examine such a question, I think we need to examine that there is, and there are assumptions that are lying at the root of the question. Why do we want to know? Why are we asking? Right? In a recent talk, I spoke about conceptual perception that arises in us when we encounter shapes and sounds, and how our attention shifts from naked reality, as it is, to our thoughts, all feelings. And those thoughts and feelings get triggered at that moment of encounter, right? So we may be chanting something, we may be feeling something, and at the same time, we also encounter thoughts, feelings, concepts. And it happens, actually happens quite often. And when it happens, there's a sense that what we are thinking is in fact what we are seeing or, or hearing. But as the Buddha taught, these are just mental reflections of reality. It's not reality itself. It's something that is, uh, we mirror somehow through our concepts. So, of course, when we encounter a practice that consists of robes, liturgy, incense burning, and bowing, the mind tends to assign it a label. And the label says religion. This is a religious practice. But regardless how you, of how you feel about it, this is not really uh, the case with that. The point is that it happens. Whether you like it or not, it happens. So then when it happens, you know, when we look at it, we look for some confirmation of what we think we already know. Rather than put aside what we think we know and then examine and then get lost into what's happening so we can experience it, which is actually more scary than holding on to opinions. We, we ask a question often to verify what we know so we can feel better about what we know rather than let go of what we know. And I think that often when people ask you, ask us, is it a religion? I think it comes from there. I don't think they want to know. I think they want to make sure that what they know is true. Because if they really wanted to know, and you tell them, give it a shot, try it, they will try it. But they just want a quick verification. Because if you say, yes, it is, well, I got my own. I don't need that. If you say it's not, maybe they say, well, I'm looking for a religion. It's very tricky. It's very muddy, actually. It's very muddy uh, to, to, to live this way, uh, to ask questions this way. So to truly question, right, it means to inquire, to be willing to inquire, to investigate, to look deeply, uh, to be curious. And of course, it means to, to be willing to put aside the assumptions, which is a very big challenge for us, especially when we identify with our thoughts, feelings, emotions, whole spectrum. It's who we are. Now, the word religion, the word itself, you know, comes from the, the Latin root legare, which means to join, to unite, to bring all the parts together. Think about it, you know, in, in the name of that word, to bring together, how much have we done to tear apart, to divide? How much uh, religion, religious practices are or how further away they are from what religion means, essentially. It's to bring together. And to bring together, this is actually very, especially now, I think uh, we're all worried about what's going to happen on November 8th. I think we have to be more worried what's going to happen on 9th, the day after. Whoever wins. Whoever wins, we are, going, we are looking at a very divided nation, divided people. 
And, and on both sides, there is a lot of fear. Fear of the other. What if the other wins? What's that going to mean for me? And we create divisions on a, on a daily, regular basis, especially in this election cycle. So to unite, to bring the parts together, and more commonly, when we come back, when we come back to religion, more commonly it refers to the unity, to the unity between the human and the divine. And in some religions, actually, although the word says unity between the, the human and the divine, in some religions, there is a very clear-cut line between the human and the divine that you dare to cross. You have to be clear about that, or at least it's taught that way, that there is the human and there is the divine. And you better know your place. You better know your place. Because the divine is above and you're below. It's very dangerous on many levels, if it's not understood correctly. And judging by the state of our world, it's not practiced correctly, it's not understood correctly. Because we're not united. We are very much divided. So the unity between the human and the divine, which in Buddhist terms would be a realization of unity between form and emptiness, the ephemeral and the fundamental, the relative and the absolute. We, we, we talk about it all the time. We practice it. We experience it. We deal with it with, in koan study. This is uh, bread and butter for a practitioner. Now, look at what the word is pointing at and compare it to what arises in the mind when the word is uttered. The word religion, right? It's, just, it's completely overused, hijacked, abused, misunderstood, fought for, killed for, people die for it. None of it comes from what it means. A hundred percent of the way we, we, we practice, in many cases, hundred percent of it is it comes out of being vested in our concepts about it, not from what it really is. And we believe that is true. We as human beings. There's a big gap there, but the tendency, of course, for conceptual mind, or for the thinking mind, is to run towards assumptions, towards thoughts, rather than, let me take a look at what it really means. I will take a look at what it means, because I'm not going to swallow what is given to me by others who claim to understand. I think it's one of the things that always attracted me uh, to Buddhism is that, or to Zen is that nobody is promising anything. Nobody is saying, I know better, come sit, around, sit with me and I'll show you the ropes. All we show you is how to sit. We tell you about posture. We tell you about some breathing techniques, breathing exercises, right? We, we give you some suggestions in regards to what to do with thoughts. You know, we, we, there's some guidance. But ultimately, you see for yourself, or you don't. Ultimately, it comes down to that. You see it fresh. Not because... We are a part of what is called Buddhism. 
There is no such thing. There is no such thing as a concept. There is such a thing as the one who is sitting on these cushions, the one who is seeing through these eyes, listening through these ears, the one who has blood flowing in the veins. Yeah, there is that. And this has to be what we call Buddhism. And, and personally, I had uh, my own journey with, with, with religion. Because growing up in Israel, I, I grew up with a aver- strong aversion to it because, I, because there is no separation between state and religion in Israel and because religion is very dominant, although uh, most people are not, uh, you would not call them uh, Followers, they do not practice every day. Yet it's a very strong power, has very strong influence on the country. So I developed aversion to it and to everything that has to do with or smells like what I thought is religious. I grew up in a, in a, in a family that did not practice Judaism, at least, and. Uh, and, of, and, and I, could not, I could not avoid dragging this aversion into my Zen practice, too. So I remember times, I mean, I remember also feeling like, well, I just want to sit. I don't want to do all the, what I felt was extra. Right? Because I, and not because of what it is, because I was actually shut down to what it really is. Because I saw it and my mind labeled it. My mind actually created something that, w- that does not exist. Because I thought I knew what I'm seeing. And because I thought I knew what I'm seeing, I was not able to understand what is really going on. And I felt that liturgy was, when we talk about liturgy, I felt that it was an unnecessary extra. And I couldn't see the transformative effect it has and the beauty it has. So this, for me, this aspect of our practice got mingled with a, with a stale, stale childhood associations of so-called religious rituals had nothing to do with it. But nonetheless, for me, it had everything to do with it. And it took me a while to understand that, little by little, I opened up to it and took a while to understand that what I was averse to was not religion itself. It was just a bunch of thoughts and concepts that grew out of exposure. And, and true, the exposure wa- was, uh, came about from growing up in a country that I still think is not practicing correctly. People that call themselves religious pract- practitioners are actually not quite. I felt it when I was there and I feel it now even stronger, but now I understand. You don't throw the, the baby with the bath water. You change the water. There is preciousness. But we have to be careful not to make what is precious create what is precious in our own image. It's not about us. Definitely not about what we think. So instead of dressing up 
what we experience or what we, what we see or what we hear with our own concepts. We have to live it alone. Live it alone and try it out. Try it out as it is. And again, it's a challenge. So, going back to my own personal experience with it, when I realized that I was holding myself back from really experiencing what it has, it started to change. It was like a, a dam had opened up and I was able to actually see what it does, lose myself to it, and then actualize it. Actualize it. And I think some of you experienced that. Uh, I remember a few people from last week said, during the session, they came to and they expressed how moved they were by us chanting together. Moved to a point of tears coming down. And they couldn't understand why. Why are tears coming down? Why are we moved by this? What is it about it that is moving us? The more we all, well, I think that Sashin has this uh, great effect on us. Little by little, it chips away at the, at, the, at the shell. And we open up. We just open up. We come into Sashin with some, sense, with some level of rigidity, and then little by little, it chips away at that. And we open up, and our hearts open up. And then we, it resonates with us. We resonate with it. And then what seems to be foreign is no longer foreign. What we're chanting is maybe the song of our people. <laughs> Where did I hear that? Where did I hear that? <laughs> oh, yes, they said Katayas. <laughs> That is true. Yes. It's, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I think, I think it, is, it is that more than anything. I think it's actually a, a sound that vibrates on such a deep level that it wakes up something in us. And it is a religious experience but not because of what you think religion is, because it brings all the parts together. Because you lose yourself, because what you lose is that, what we lose is the, the, the divide, the wall between self and other. It takes it down. It is a religious experience, as is Kensho, realization. Kensho is considered a religious experience because it drops the walls down. It removes the gaps. And when the gaps are removed, you don't care so much about your opinions. You don't care about walking around naked. Because you don't need an image. Who are you going to impress? Yourself? Look in the mirror and... See how great you are? Well, some do. <laughs> I think you get the point. So, this, this can only happen when we really truly commit ourselves, give ourselves to it. As long as we, we give ourselves to our opinions, never going to happen. We will not have a religious experience. Because we will not unite. And we will keep dividing. But with commitment, relentless commitment, something happens. Something gets chipped, gets chipped away. You know, Chibasen says, you know, some of you know, the, he passed away, one of the greatest Aikido teachers uh, that was a part of our federation. He said, without commitment, there's no harmony. It's a very interesting statement. Without commitment, there's no harmony. Without commitment to seeing through chipping away at the wall, at the dividing wall, 
how can we find harmony? How can we experience harmony? It's too difficult. This wall is too big. And actually, maybe I don't even want to remove the wall. Because deep down I know when the wall comes down, I die. Maybe we don't want harmony. Maybe we don't want peace. Maybe, we, maybe what we do is designed to not bring about unity. It seems this way now with, with the election cycle, right? We don't want to recognize the other side, so to speak, as people like us. This is why I think the challenge of November 9th is much greater than the next 10 days, regardless of who wins. So, you know, in Aikido training, as you know, some of you know, we strive to perfect harmonizing with an incoming force, right? So we can embody unity through movement. In Zen practice, we take on the responsibility to realize inherent unity, to realize inherent unity, and to embody, to embody it on a momentary basis, to recognize that unity and diversity actually are non-dual, and to recognize that the relative and the absolute are already in perfect accord. Differences are not issues. And to recognize that, that human and divine have never been apart. Not blasphemy, right? Maybe somebody's going to come say, what are you talking about? You'll be striking down, stricken down for saying words like that. The human is not the divine. The human is down below and the divine is up above. Now we'd ask, how do you know that? How do you know that? Because you read it? Because somebody told you? Or are you afraid to question that? That is a huge divide that we don't want to mess with. And I know many people in Israel I, I talked with never wanted to, don't want to mess with this. Don't want to touch it. Leave it alone. Be careful opening this up. Well, I don't want to be careful. And I hope you don't want to be careful either. Mess with everything. Especially with your thoughts and concepts and beliefs and ideas. Face them. Mess with them. Open them up. Don't leave any rock, anything, unlooked unattended to, uncovered. Otherwise, we're not committed to practice. So what we need to do is recognize and experience inherent freedom from all dualistic views that essentially are in us. We hold on to them. How desperately the world needs exactly that, doesn't it, these days? You know, Zen is a path to awakening, as I said many times, and of awakening. It's nothing more than that and nothing less than that. It's a path of unity, realizing unity, not creating unity, just realizing unity, and realize also at the same time to realize unity, realize how we get in the way of unity. We create what we complain about, and then we try to fight what we create. In our minds, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, in our world. Right? It's a path that is asking us to travel light without the burden of our opinions. So is this a religious path? You, maybe you call it religion. 
religious path. But watch out, watch out, because if you think that liturgy is a religious activity, right, then taking out the garbage, going food shopping or working may be considered secular activity or activities. So this will just come down to putting down a secular backpack and picking up the holy one when you come to practice. And then you put this one down, you pick up another one. There's always something we carry. We carry the thoughts about what we do instead of just do what we do and allow what we do to shed the extra. It is essentially seamless. It's not. Now I'm going to practice religion, now I'm going to practice secular activity, and then I'm going to go back on Sunday to practice some more. No. It doesn't work this way. That's not what practice is asking us to do. It's asking us to shed the, all divisions, not to create new ones in the name of practice. In this koan, the monk is asking Changsha to explain what is Dalani. Now, the word Dalani comes from a Sanskrit three-letter root, DHR, which means to uphold, to maintain. And in Buddhism, it's referring to the various kinds of chants we recite. And there are different ones. I mean, I, we, we inherited some from my teacher, who I think inherited a lot more, but got rid of some. And I've added some too, you know, through exposure to other uh, traditions, other Zen traditions, namely Rinzai mostly, and which I thought, I felt were skillful for us to deepen. And now we, we bring liturgy bring it up every Sunday. Sometimes there are more people, sometimes less people. Still, we have decided to take on the commitment to uphold that every Sunday. And we do it. We have been doing it. Right? I don't think we skipped one Sunday since we decided to do it. And I feel the difference. I feel the difference. I feel that it is even taking me deeper into what liturgy means. Not as means to an end, into what it means when we are chanting. Not what it does for us. More in how we lose ourselves to that. And I've said many times that all aspects of practice, all aspects of practice are there to help us shed the self. That's all. Just so we can shed what is in the way. The, the practice is not there to create something to realize. Practice is there to help us see how we get in our own way. And realize, realize that it's, whole, it's always been perfect. We have always been perfect. So Dharani is referring to all practices, right? So everything we do in ceremonies, everything we do in liturgy, and so on. So Changsha here is, is answering the question, right, is only by pointing at the life of liturgy, the life of it. Now this is taking it further, obviously, because at that moment, at that moment, the monk to the right and the monk to the left were just sitting. There was no invocation going on. So he says, this guy is reciting the Dalani. And then the Mawa, okay, fine. Is there anybody else? Because I can't hear this guy. Right? And he says, yeah, the other guy too. 
Well, obviously, I can't hear the other guy either. And then the monk says, why can't I hear it? When Changsha says, haven't you heard that real chanting makes no sound, and in real listening, there is no hearing? Now, this is what happens in, this is what needs to happen in liturgy. When you chant, you not only lose your own voice, you don't hear anything. Because you are what is being chanted. And in that, how does the ear hear itself? How does the eye see itself? Where do the gaps come from? Like that question, you know, does does the sound come to the ear or does the ear go to the sound? There's no real listening and there's no real hearing, he says. Now, when we chant the Hot Sutra together, right, the purity of the sound of no sound is manifesting clearly through our unified voice. But at the same time, there are many distractions floating in our minds while we chant. For example, how do I sound? Am I in tune with everybody else? She or he is doing a much better job than I am. I don't get the point of this sutra. I'd rather be somewhere else. Or whatever it is going on in our minds. There's always something going on. And often we fight the bait. We go with it. So it is offering something, and while it is offering something to us, we opt to go with thoughts. And then we come back. I mean, we do. We go and we come back. We go to thinking, we come back. But when we do come back, we have to come back full force. When we do actually have glimpses of what it means to actually chant, we have to do it wholeheartedly and lose ourselves to what we do. Lose the commentator. Lose the opinions. Lose the concepts. The questions, the, the comments, the judgments. The mind keeps weaving them, right? And there's imaginary webs, imaginary webs essentially, that we keep getting caught up in. And then we look for a way out. But who is holding you back? Who is trapping you? And the chant itself is just one single-minded activity that in itself is neither religious nor secular. It offers a gateway, a doorway, to an instance of realization in the midst of ceaseless mental activity. How clear is that? I mean, how clear is all past, present, and future Buddhas live Prajna Paramita and therefore attain supreme, perfect enlightenment? Therefore, no, Prajna Paramita is the great mantra, the luminous mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomparable mantra by which all suffering is cleared. This is the truth, not a lie. That's it. Religious, not religious. I like it, I don't like it. How do I sound? I don't want to be here, I'd rather be somewhere else. Where, where is all this in this? Where? Between the words? Where do we read this? Where is it? Where does it come from? Just chant. Open up your mouth. Let the voice come out. Don't personalize it. It's not you chanting. It's just merging with a chant. What Changsha is saying is that real chanting makes no sound. And real listening, in real listening, there is no hearing. He's pointing at the divide, or, or he's pointing at how we bring in something that does not exist in what we are doing. 
total freedom, right? How amazing is that? In, mere, in hearing, merely hearing. In seeing, merely seeing. In doing, merely doing. As in the saying, active all day, she does nothing. Active all day, she does nothing. Because she's not there to complain and judge and quantify. Because she doesn't care about judging or quantifying. Because who is she going to complain to? Who? There is no other. There's no one else. That's Wu Wei. Right? Wu Wei in Chinese, Taoism. Doing or non-doing, doing. Non-doing, doing. Non-hearing, hearing. Non-listening, non listening. Non-chanting, chanting. Non-being, being. Total forgetfulness of being. This is the commentary brings up a quote from Dogen who says, Seeing forms with the whole body and mind, hearing sound with the whole body and mind, one understands them intimately. Intimate understanding is not like ordinary understanding. This is from Dogen. Intimate understanding is not like ordinary understanding. Monk, this monk here wants to understand in an ordinary way. So he asks the question in an ordinary manner. Doesn't sound enter into the nature of the Dharma realms? And Changsha said, living forms to observe forms isn't a correct view. Living sound to seek listening is impaired hearing. This is the conventional. This is common. This is how we understand reality. But it's not how reality is. This is actually impaired hearing is not real hearing because we're not listening to what's going on. We're listening to our thoughts. We, we, we mess, instead of really listening, we, we open the backpack and we go, what did I bring with me today? I want to see what I brought with me. What kind of sandwich do I have there? What can I eat? What do I feed off? How do I regurgitate and chew over and over again the same old food? Meanwhile, the table is offering fresh food for all, every day. Brought in fresh. But we're not interested. Because the flavors may not be what we are used to. So I better eat my own food. It's kind of like going to somebody's house and saying, no, thank you, I'm going to, I brought my plate, I brought my fork and knife, and I brought my own sandwich. I'll be here with you guys, but I'll eat my own food. And sometimes I think we actually chant this way. We chant, the lips move, but our minds are totally somewhere else. We don't partake. We don't take part in. Too much going on in my life right now. I'll do this because I maybe gave commitment, I made commitment to the Sangha, I'll show up. Okay, I'll do that. Because I like these people. That doesn't count. That's not why we come together. We don't come together to keep company to each other, which is nice. We do that too, but that's not the point. We come together to lose ourselves together. It's a much bigger task than to hang out, isn't it? So going back to, and to wrap this up, going back to the word religious, which means to unite and to recognize unity, right? Which is to say, realizing gapless reality. When there are no gaps, how can you differentiate between the ear and the sound? How can you draw a line between religious and secular? Between the divine and the human? Who is drawing a line? The human or the divine? Who is saying that the divine and the human are separated?
And it's not special, it's birthright. It's just how we were born. But we live every day and we keep bumping into, against, our conceptual barriers that we create. We create. <clears throat> Rumi said, I was going to bring that line, he said, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek, <clears throat> excuse me, merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. It's really clear, isn't it? Don't look for it. Look for the ways you are preventing it from flowing out. Look for the ways you trap yourself and keep yourself away from love. From unity. Love is essentially unity. So we have to be careful in the way we practice, in the way we, we, we use the practice, maybe. We should not abuse it. We should not dump our own issues into it, onto it, and cover it up. Again, travel light. You know, the, the love Rumi is referring to here is, is the all-pervading unity that the world religion is pointing at. It's also conveyed clear through the simple words of Sengtsan, no need to search for truth, just put to rest all views. Don't look for the truth. Don't look for the divine. Manifest the divine. How? By realizing how you get in the way and by not believing your thoughts, concepts, feelings. Unity, the divine, love, will naturally flow. It wants to flow. It wants to move. So when we chant, just chant. When you bow, just bow. Put the forehead on the ground. Express unity. Express oneness with your body and mind. And at that moment, let all passing thoughts come and go as they will. Rather than accumulate them, clump them into what is creating barriers. Because you know, when we realize that our thoughts are, and feelings have no owner, right? There is nobody there to own them. When we realize that, then a transient form of a human being becomes a beautiful expression of that which is timeless and formless. And with that, peace, love, and unity are actualized and not sought for. Actualized and not sought for.